0: Yeah, run fast while you can. (laughs) Get out while the getting's good. I'm going to grab my glasses. Well, good morning. Uh, For those of you who don't know me, my name is Todd Miles. I I bring you greetings from Western Seminary in Portland, Oregon, where I teach, Uh, from Hinson Church, where I am a member and I get to serve as an elder, and, and they will have prayed for us Uh, already uh, this morning Um, just a, a, a word of disclaimer before we begin when I picked the text the unpardonable sin I was blissfully unaware that today was Father's Day I had no idea, so there is no necessary connection between an unpardonable sin and fatherhood or Father's Day or anything like that. It was there's not even accidental linkage. There's no linkage at all. I just thought it would be fun to come and talk about something that I get a lot of questions on, a lot or often, and uh, because at issue here is 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 recognizing the Messiah. And in this context, for us, it's going to be about Israel recognizing her Messiah. How are they to recognize him? Uh, we don't have the exact same context uh, when it comes to what we will read today. I will uh, make an argument about whether or not we can Uh, commit the unpardonable sin and much of it's going to hinge on specifically what was going on at the time but for them it was about recognizing the messiah you you heard uh read at one point they see jesus and they ask the question could this be the son of david could this be the right one could this be the one we've been waiting for and I, i i i hate to tell you this but We're going to be thrust into a situation here very, very shortly where we're going to have to make a decision on who we want to lead us again. It seems like only yesterday that we completed that contentious presidential voting season with Donald Trump being elected the 45th president of the United States. And already here we are again. We're at it again. The Democrats have a large number of candidates vying for the, uh, uh, the, the Democratic nomination to take on, I assume, uh, the incumbent uh, from the Republican side. And at last count, I think it was like 700 Democrats are, are going to be uh, in the Democratic primaries. Now, I, it's a, okay, that's a total exaggeration. It's actually just over 500, right? <laughs> um Pretty soon, though, pretty soon, the candidates will be flooding the airwaves and the blogosphere and the Twitter universe with their appeals. And at least at the primary level, it's often very, very difficult to differentiate between the candidates, you know. Uh, But before long, discussions that we will have, maybe even at church, but certainly out in the marketplace with our neighbors, who are you going to vote for? And really what's behind that question is probably something more searching Uh, who ought to be president who ought to be president who brings the most credentials and quite frankly it's it's very difficult to tell uh, because we are going to be voting for flawed people all of them very flawed people wouldn't it be nice if the right candidate came with the lord's imprimatur, you know, with, with the Lord's markings, this is the one, this is the one. He came with some sort of divine calling card by which we could clearly recognize without, certain, without any uncertainty, this is the right man or the right woman for the job. And, of course, we're just talking about a presidential election. You know, that seems like a big deal in the United States, but it's only so important when it comes to solving the world's problems or even addressing them. It's, it's relatively insignificant when it comes to solving our most pressing problems, our, our, our ultimate problems, even if they're at the national level or the community level, it's certainly at the personal level, the personal level recognizing the right person for the presidential job is of let's face it relatively little consequence compared to recognizing the Lord's man who had the monumental task of reconciling the world to himself further you know here we are way out in the West and sometimes it feels like the elections done before we even vote right it's it's over and, uh, but, but when it comes to recognizing the Lord's man, your selection does matter. Your selection matters. Not because you're voting and you bring him into office. No, no, no I mean the Lord has given the Messiah the job of being the Christ, the Savior. So it's not your selection, like you're voting for him. But your selection in that your well-being, your hopes, your dreams, your reconciliation with others, with yourself, and most importantly with God, they hinge upon your recognition of this man. And so let's be perfectly frank here. Your eternal destiny hinges on your being able to recognize God's Messiah, Savior. But how are we supposed to do that? How are we supposed to do that is there a divine calling card is there a symbol of the Lord's imprimatur you know kind of that divine stamp that says this is the one by which we might recognize him and what we find in our text today is yes there is there is he's made it easy for us and so in our text today we're gonna find that Israel was faced with just that selection the Lord's man was among them and their destiny both as a nation And at the personal level depended upon their recognizing him we're also going to find that the Lord's Messiah the King did come with a divine calling card a a sign that should have given Israel absolute certainty that their Savior was actually walking among them so here is the, uh, the, the, the entire point of, of this sermon, and it's, it's rather long, but I'll, I'll say it twice if you want to take notes, if you're scoring at home, I guess. The, the anointing of the Holy Spirit is the number one indicator of the Messiah, and stubborn refusal to recognize the Spirit's witness will bring hopeless condemnation. So that's, that's the whole point of what we'll be talking about today. The anointing of the Holy Spirit is the number one indicator of the Messiah, and stubborn refusal to recognize the Spirit's witness will bring hopeless condemnation. So if, if, you're, if you're here this morning and you don't understand yourself to be a Christian, I would like to ask you to consider this. What will it take to convince you that Jesus is the Christ? the Messiah, the Savior, how long will you continue to say no? For the rest of you, you do understand yourself to be a Christian. You've recognized, you have submitted to Jesus Christ as the Messiah, the Christ, and you might say, well, what now? Is it just a matter of simple recognition and you live your life as you please? Or does his sign of authenticity that we'll be talking about today require more than just simple recognition?" So uh, we're going to focus mainly on verses 22 through 32, but Matthew is a really good writer, and he sets us up well. So in order to understand Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 through 32, it's important that we go back earlier. I mean, honestly, we should go back to the very beginning, uh, but we don't have time for that. Uh, We're not even going to read everything that was read, uh, just recognize that there is a Sabbath controversy going on. Uh, and it seems like if you've read the Gospels before, there's always a Sabbath controversy with Jesus. And you might ask, why is Jesus so cranky about the Sabbath? And why are the Pharisees so cranky about the Sabbath? Why are they always clashing with one another? And so I think in order to understand this, this chapter, there's two things that we need to understand. Now, now these are not Gnostic truths. Okay? They're, they're all over Scripture, but oftentimes we miss them. And and the reason for the Sabbath controversy that we see Jesus in in verses one through eight, and then following in nine through fourteen, is this: the Sabbath is the sign of the Mosaic Covenant. The Sabbath is the sign of the Mosaic Covenant, and now, now why is that important? Because all the all of the covenants come with a sign. What was the sign of the covenant with Noah? This is an easy one. Rainbow, good, thank you. What was the sign of the Abrahamic covenant? Circumcision, I thought I heard it out there. Circumcision, circumcision was the sign of the Abrahamic covenant, and God gave to Israel Sabbaths to observe as a sign of the Mosaic covenant. Now, you also know that there were certain conditions attached to the Mosaic covenant, that if Israel obeyed it, there would be a whole bunch of blessings. But if Israel could not live up to the covenant, if they failed in it, then they would reap a whole bunch of horrible curses. And that's exactly what plays out. If, if you have read through the Old Testament, you know Israel doesn't keep the Mosaic Covenant and there are a bunch of curses that fall upon them that were part of the covenant. It's part of the contract they agreed to. Moses even warned them, are you sure you want to get into this? Because if you can't live up to it, all these curses will come down upon you including the mother of all curses exile and of course exile comes eventually god is merciful and he brings israel back to the land but they're never autonomous they never get to rule themselves first it's like persian leadership and then it's greek leadership and later on it's roman leadership and it's roman leadership when jesus comes and so even though when jesus is walking the earth uh, the uh, it, the Israelites are there in the land, probably kind of felt like they were still in exile. So there's this like grassroots group that grows up. Uh, they're not like born of privilege or anything. Some of them might have been, but it was just a group of people who got together who, who thought we need to go back and start obeying the covenant. And, and they were called the Pharisees. It's just a group of people who were Who were committed to covenant observance, obeying the law of Moses. But they were so committed to it that making sure that they didn't break any of the laws, that they often, in their traditions and teachings on how to obey the laws, that they put together, like for lack of a better word, fences to keep people from even coming close to breaking the law. So for example, the, the law just says you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. There's a little bit of case law on not working on the Sabbath. Uh, but the, but the Pharisees took a bunch of teachings from the elders, and, it, and it's like it became codified this oral tradition, and so uh, don't work on the Sabbath. But the the oral tradition that the Pharisees became very strict on was some were were, were rules and regulations like don't spit on the Sabbath. Now, why would spitting on the Sabbath be forbidden? Not because it's gross, but because your saliva might roll downhill and you might make clay, thus doing work inadvertently. Okay, So, so this is the kind of stuff that, that the Pharisees are all about. Now, 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 why is the Sabbath so important to them? Because it's the sign of the covenant. And they're thinking, we've got to at least get the sign of the covenant right. If, if we can't get the sign of the covenant right, what hope is there that we could get you know, like the the rest of the covenant, right? So that's why they're so cranky about the Sabbath. And, and Jesus will have none of that. And they just clash over and over again. And that's exactly what happens in Matthew chapter 12 uh, uh, in verses 1 through 8 where, where Jesus does what appears to them to be a little bit of work. And, and, and they come to Jesus and say, why are you doing this? And Jesus will have none of it. He basically just pronounces himself to be Lord of the Sabbath. He says, the Sabbath was made for man. Man was not made for the Sabbath. I am the Lord of the Sabbath, he says. says, Oh, okay, (laughs) take that. Uh, Well, except they don't take that. They get really frustrated. And so they decide to set Jesus up. We know it's a setup because Matthew tells us it's a setup. Jesus goes into the synagogue on the Sabbath. There they place, they, the bad guys, The Pharisees, they place a man with a withered hand just waiting for Jesus to heal him. Just waiting so they can pounce. Now, how blind do you have to be at this point to where you know that this guy has incredible powers to heal and you set him up to do something that is just jaw-dropping awesome so that you can catch him in a Sabbath violation of the oral tradition, not an actual law. It's like he... He actually heals this guy. He heals this guy. Stretch forth your hand. And he stretches forth his hand, and, and what was clearly a, a withered, useless hand is now robust and full and healthy. And they're like, gotcha, <laughs> right? gotcha. <laughs> Whoa, what's going on? Okay, so, so that's what's going on here. Jesus talks with them. He goes, well, it's not against the law to do good on the Sabbath. Right? Which one of you, if one of your animals fell into a pit, wouldn't like do the work of pulling that animal out of the pit? And of course, all of them had probably done that numerous times. And he goes, Well, aren't people more important than animals? It's self evident. And so then, then he, he, uh, he, he heals the guy. Verse 14 the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. And that translation. Language the language of destruction. It's a very good translation is a strong word they didn't want to just hinder Jesus or upset him or Inconvenience him they wanted to destroy him because he was Rocking the boat I guess because he was interfering with their plans for the kingdom of Israel I guess ignorant of God's plans for it now so jesus knows jesus knows that they are fried at him they he knows that they want to destroy him so verse 15 jesus aware of this withdrew from there and many followed him and he healed them all he ordered them not to make him known What's going on here? Jesus knows that the temperature is rising. And so he he is not bucking for a fight, at least not at this time. And so he withdraws. But people are following him. And he heals them all, we're told. Why? Probably for the same reason that he always healed people. Because he has compassion. Because he loves and cares about people. He tells them, though, don't tell anybody about this because his goal is not, especially at this time, not at this time in his ministry, his goal is not to create a fight. What he wants to do is teach and minister, teaching on the kingdom of God and bringing a foretaste of the kingdom of God to God's people. That's what he wants to do. This is explained for us in a brilliant bit of writing by Matthew here. Now, of course, we would say, of course, it's brilliant. He's inspired by the Holy Spirit. So, yes, I I get that. But it's still really good writing because what he does is he's going to quote an Old Testament prophecy about the servant of the Lord, which was given to prepare Israel for the Messiah, and in so doing, Matthew, this is what's brilliant about it. The last part of the prophecy explains what has just happened. The first part of the prophecy explains what is about to follow. So it's really, really clever. And So this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah notice, so first, verse 18 and following will explain what's to come. So I'll read that fast. Behold my servant whom I've chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Verse 19. This explains what just took place. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. And a smoldering wick He will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Why did Jesus move away from the big conflict and then heal everyone who came? Because the Messiah will be characterized by these attributes, he will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. It's not like he goes around, talks in a whisper. That's not the point here. The point is he's not fighting. He's not angry. He's not not bucking for that fight. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not quench. The, The imagery is of the most fragile of objects here. What does this teach us about Jesus? He is kind and he is compassionate. He is gentle and he is tender. He's he's not a self-justifier. He's going to trust in God to vindicate him. He does not need to justify himself. He does not try to justify himself. He is gentle. And maybe we should take a page from Jesus' playbook in this. See, Jesus wasn't looking for an unnecessary fight. The character of the Messiah is kind and gentle and and we ought not to mistake that for being soft or being permissive I mean we're gonna find Jesus can be stern this is what follows in, in the latter part of the passage we'll be looking at but I would encourage you to meditate on this passage contemplating what kind of person is the Lord Jesus Christ see our our culture especially when it comes to a fight values someone who gives more than he gets. We respond to conflict and controversy immediately, usually aided by social media, whether on Twitter or Facebook, and we can sit in the anonymity of our homes and cowardly type out, just boom, 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 Send off it goes, blasting whoever, Sometimes we might even have the courage, not necessarily the wisdom, but the courage to do it to people's faces because we want to justify ourselves. We want to justify ourselves. We want to get the last word in. And the spirit of our age demands that we make sure that we're justified in the eyes of others. We want everyone to know that we're in the right and the people who are opposing us, they are the ones who are in the wrong. And that kind of thinking that characterizes our world followed by commensurate action... It too often creeps into the church And we need to recognize Man, Jesus is nothing like that We're told here That Jesus is gentle He proclaims justice But not primarily for himself He doesn't argue or shout He's not characterized by anger Though he will demonstrate Righteous anger if properly provoked But above all As I said, he's, he's gentle A bruised reed A smoldering wick what do you do with that? You throw it away, you dispose of it, right? Those, aren't, those are useless. Well, Matthew and the gospel writers, they're not concerned with vegetation. They're talking about people here. They're talking about people who are so worn and so broken that they're almost useless. And Jesus is kind and gentle with them. Kind and gentle with them. It's people that Jesus is concerned about, and it is to people that Jesus demonstrates his most tenderness. He takes people where they are. Why? Because he knows who people are and what they can be. Jesus is not cowed. He is not impressed, nor is he fooled by any of us. He is not stymied by our sin. He is not mortified by our sin. Now, he hates sin. Make no mistake about that. Look at the cross if you want to see God's view and Jesus' view of the cross. Jesus was willing to die to rid the world and you of sin. but, But Jesus knows you. And it's not like he sees only the best of you, right? He knows you in the totality of who you are sinner and saint he went to the cross to atone for your sin you don't need to hide it from him you don't need to go to him and you will not find a harsh judge you will find a tender brother someone who looks on you who knows you exactly like you are and as the book of hebrews says he is not ashamed to call you his brother His sister. Not ashamed at all because Jesus loves you as you are. He's not going to leave you where you are, but He loves you as you are. And when you go to Him, which you have to go to Him, you can go with the confidence that you will find someone who is gentle and tender with you. And I think that's how we need to be. You know, elders. If I I could speak to you, just even for a moment, just to say under shepherds, that's what elders and pastors are under shepherds, under the great shepherd, we have to shepherd God's people the way that Jesus would shepherd them and does shepherd them. And we see here that he is characterized by gentleness and tenderness. The people of the church belong to Christ. They are his sheep and your authority is delegated, it's given for the purpose of rightly shepherding the people of God, that Jesus might be honored, not you. Right? And then, okay, it's Father's Day, right? So dad's out there. Uh, there's this thing called, like, toxic masculinity. Maybe you've heard about that on social media. People are, are, are always are talking about masculinity. It's toxic. And, and uh, maybe... Maybe if we took a page out of Jesus' book. See, see, this is what's nice about being a guy. Men, you can look at Jesus. This is how you're supposed to be, right? So if you, if you want a picture of masculinity, look at Christ. And, and maybe if the church had modeled men, if you had modeled a masculinity that was like Christ, maybe the world wouldn't be decrying something that they're calling toxic masculinity. fathers. Be gentle and tender with your children. I'm not saying be permissive. I'm not saying let sin go. Jesus can be stern when he needs to be, but what is he characterized by? He's characterized here by gentleness and tenderness. And I would submit to you that Jesus is a man. Right? He is worthy of our emulation. We need not be ashamed to be like Jesus, and you are not somehow less than a man if you're gentle and if you're tender, especially with your kids. Okay, so there's that. Now, that was to explain what happened. Look at it in verse 18 for a preview or for an explanation of what follows. Behold my servant whom I've chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. The servant of the Lord is the spirit anointed one. What is it that makes the Messiah? If if I were to ask you, What is it that makes Jesus the Christ? What is it that qualifies Jesus to be Messiah? I won't ask you that. I'll throw out some wrong answers first. Um, Maybe he's the son of God. Uh, Is it because he's the son of David, because he's a king? The biblical answer to the question, what is it that makes Jesus the Messiah, the Christ, is given to us in this Isaiah passage. Because Christ is a Greek word meaning Like, to anoint. We use it in English. To christen something, right? To anoint. Uh, The Christ means, literally, the anointed one. What does Messiah mean? Well, Messiah is a Hebrew word, and it means the exact same thing. The anointed one. Okay? So, who's the anointed one? Who is it? It's the one anointed with the Holy Spirit. So, what is it that makes Jesus the Christ? What is it that makes him the Messiah? the presence and power of the Spirit of God in his life. It's the number one indicator of the, of the Christ because it's what literally makes the Lord's Christ the Christ, the Lord's Messiah the Messiah. Does that make sense? What makes Jesus the Messiah is the presence and power of the Spirit in his life. And there's all sorts of prophecies about this. So this is the second thing I th- that you need to understand in order to understand This passage, first one, the sign of the Mosaic covenant was the Sabbath. And two, it's the spirit, presence and power of the spirit that makes Jesus the Messiah. Why would I say that? Well, it's all through the Bible. Isaiah 11, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And then he does all these things empowered by these very attributes that the spirit is said to give him. How was how is Israel supposed to recognize their Messiah? The spirit of the Lord would be on this person and and, and that person would do remarkable things and be a remarkable person because of the presence of the spirit. Isaiah 61, this is one of Jesus' favorite messianic prophecies, and we know that because it's it's where he went to in the book of Isaiah when he was going to kick off his public ministry. So he goes into the synagogue in Nazareth. We're told he takes the scroll of Isaiah and turns to this passage, Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me, Isaiah 61. Why? Because the Lord has anointed me the Lord has christened me the Lord has messiahed me to bring good news to the poor he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn and so on and and Jesus reads that basically announcing he was the Messiah there's a host of other passages that tie the presence and power of the Spirit to the servant of the Lord, the one who would be the Messiah, That all through the Old Testament. And then when Jesus shows up, the Gospel writers take pains to to tell us, yeah, Jesus was that one. He was that one. John tells us that God had given the Spirit to Jesus without measure. No one had ever had the Spirit of God. Like Jesus Christ did. That's John 3:34. In John 16, 14, this is the upper room discourse. Jesus is preparing his disciples to go out into the world. This is right before the cross. And he tells them, I'm gonna send you a helper, the spirit of truth. And he says this in John 16:14: the Spirit, he will glorify me, Jesus says. The, the ministry of the Spirit of God is all about the glorification of Jesus Christ. And then After Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension, after the Spirit has come upon the church, Peter goes to the Gentiles, to Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, because he's told to to preach the gospel to Cornelius. Cornelius will eventually become the very first Gentile convert. And and he summarizes the ministry of Jesus this way. Jesus, uh, he basically says, Surely you've heard about what has happened how God anointed, christened, Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. When asked to summarize the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, Peter says, well, Jesus was anointed with the Spirit, with power went around doing good, destroying the works of the devil, because God was with him. What this tells us, and and, and even in this prophecy, that in his name, the Gentiles will hope, is that this most Jewish of Messiahs, he offers justice to the nations. You need to know, if you're a follower of Christ, that you serve the savior of the nations, the king of the cosmos. Sun Valley Church does not worship its own little tribal deity here that is unrelated to the people out there. You need to know that wherever you go, whoever you encounter, Jesus is in fact Lord of them and has a claim on their lives. Everybody, everybody you meet has a vested interest in following Jesus. He is completely relevant to everybody. They might not recognize it, but he is. Your job is to bring Jesus Christ, the Messiah, to people's consciences. consciousnesses. I should say. I, I, I love um, Jews for Jesus. I, I get to do a little bit of stuff with them. But, but their whole vision statement is this, in trying to reach the Jewish people. They say, we exist to make the Messiahship of Jesus an unavoidable issue to our Jewish people worldwide. Well, that could be our statement, too, when it comes to evangelism. Our goal should be whoever we come to, we want to just thrust Jesus right in their way. And so that they have to deal with him because he is relevant to them. He's relevant to whoever you meet. And then this sets us up for the very next section here, where stubborn refusal to recognize the Spirit's witness will bring hopeless condemnation. Verses 22 through 24. Matthew has just set us up. It's the presence of the spirit that enables us to recognize the Messiah, right? Because God has said, my servant, I'm gonna put my spirit on him. Look at verse 22. Then a demon oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him and he, Jesus, healed him so that the man spoke and saw. Demon oppressed with all sorts of physical maladies attached to it and Jesus Demonstrates his power and authority over the demonic and his ability to heal. And he does it all right there in public view. Awesome. And the people respond rightly. They're amazed, we're told. Verse 23. All the people were amazed. And then they ask the exact right question. Can this be the son of David? Could this be the Messiah? Could this be the king that we've been waiting for? Could this be the one? I I would suggest to you that's the exact right question they're supposed to ask. But, and this is a horrible but. In in the Bible, oftentimes there's a lot of really good buts. This is a bad one. But when the Pharisees heard it, they shift immediately into damage control and spin control things are getting away from them and the people are asking if Jesus is the Messiah and Jesus is the one who has been rocking the boat who they have determined is not really in league with them and so they have to discredit him and so that's what they do it is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons that this man casts out demons They attribute this amazing work that they've just seen not to the spirit because that would have made Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the one they've been waiting for. They attribute it to Satan, which would make Jesus something less than admirable, I think we'd have to say. Jesus knows this, right? We we know that because it tells us. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, and then what follows is A bunch of argumentation about why their statement that he's doing this because he's in league with Satan is one of the dumbest things that's ever been said, followed by a really important statement, the critical one for what's to follow, followed by more argumentation for why what they just said was the dumbest thing that has ever been said. So he goes, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. No city or house divided against itself will stand. So he quotes Abraham Lincoln there, right? When in doubt, quote Lincoln, right? For for, for those of you who are wondering, uh, that was a joke. (laughs) Lincoln quoted Jesus, not the other way around. But anyway, uh, so that's one thing. That that doesn't make any sense. Satan working at Satan? If Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? That's argument number one. Argument number two hey, some of your own followers, some of you fellow Pharisees have been casting out demons. How do you do it? Are you in league with Satan too? That's argument number two, okay? And then he goes down, verse 29. I'm gonna skip 28 for a moment. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? How could I cast out Satan unless I first bind him and cast him out, right? How could I do that? How can I can't be in league with Satan cuz I have just bound him and tossed him tossed him out. Argument number 3. And then a, a more general one, whoever's not with me is against me, whoever does not gather with me scatters. Jesus identifies himself as like the great differentiator. There's two kinds of people in the world according to Jesus. Those who are for Jesus and those who are against him. There's no middle ground. There's no middle ground here. Right? Jesus is the determiner of destiny. But look at verse 28. This is the critical one. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. If it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons and the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus has basically just said this. Look, guys, you know your Old Testament prophecy. You know that the number one indicator of the Messiah will be the presence and power of the Spirit of God in that individual's life. It's the number one calling card. It's the identifier. And I have done something in the Spirit. That is demonstration that the kingdom of God is here. Why? Because the king of the kingdom, the Messiah, the son of David, the spirit anointed one is in your midst right now, walking among you, doing all the things that the prophets said the Messiah, the Christ, the king, the servant would do. I'm right here in your midst. The spirit is doing awesome and remarkable things and you are witness to it. You are witness to it. I'm I'm expanding on these words a bit, right? No one else in history has ever or will ever see this. This is is the most awesome front row view of the power of God and the indication that, that I am the Messiah that anyone will ever get. And you would attribute that to Satan? There is no hope for you. That is unforgivable. Now, why would that be unforgivable? I think because of this. Jesus goes on to say, he says this, therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the one to come. So that covers a lot of ground, right? That is a lot of time. And this is super serious stuff, obviously. Jesus is effectively saying here, look, I get it. People can be confused about me. They can be confused about me. That's that's okay, I get it. But when the Spirit of God, who is the number one indicator of the Messiahship, the Spirit of God, who is the one who speaks and convicts everyone with regard to who the Messiah actually is, if you take that voice that is telling you this is the Messiah, if you take that one in, in, in time and space at that moment, if you take this incredible testimony that all the people have seen and you say, not God, not the Spirit of God, but Satan. You cannot be saved because you cannot come to Christ unless eventually you submit to the Spirit. You submit to the Spirit and say to that voice who is the Spirit of God who is telling you, Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the one you've been waiting for. Submit to him. Give your life to him. Follow him. Unless you say to that voice, I think you're telling me the truth. You're not a liar. You're not a deceiver. And and at that point in time, what those Jewish people had done at that point in time is they had taken this incredible front row seat to the authentication of the Messiah in their midst, and they said, not God, but Satan. Not the truth, but a lie. And Jesus said to them at that point in time, he said to them, You cannot be forgiven that. Because your only hope of being forgiven is that you would would believe in me. And in order to believe in me, you have to submit to the spirit. And you have just said that the very spirit of God who is convicting you, who has demonstrated the power and, and validated me as Messiah, you have said that he is satanic. You can't be forgiven that. So then the question comes to me and I get this question a lot both in the church and in my office at the school. People calling or emailing or just walking in my office just in despair. I think I committed the unpardonable sin. And so we have to, is it possible for you to commit the unpardonable sin? And so I would say it this way. I would say it this way. Um, can, it, can you do the unpardonable sin today? And I would say mostly no. Mostly No but in a sense, yes, but only in a sense. No, in the sense that this was a unique time in history when the Spirit anointed one, the Messiah, was walking the earth. Jesus Christ was doing miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit for all to witness, and he's no longer doing things just like that as he did because he's not here walking around. But even though Jesus is not at this time walking the earth, the role of the Spirit is still the same to testify to Jesus and to validate who he is. And so if, if you're here this morning, you don't understand yourself to be a Christian, you, you, you need to realize that God's verdict on you is that your sin has alienated you from God, has alienated you from others, has alienated you from yourself. You stand under God's judgment. There's nothing you can do about it. You cannot save yourself But God in his kindness has sent the Lord, Jesus Christ. He lived a perfect life and then offered up that perfect life as an atoning sacrifice for your sin. He took your punishment for you. He did what you could not do for yourself. He did it for you. But because Jesus was righteous, death could not hold him. As a demonstration that his sacrifice was sufficient to pay for all sin, God raised him from the dead. And the gospel message that you hear preached here over and over again every Sunday is that if you, believe, if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. And the question that has to come, and I think the question the Spirit speaks to you even now, is will you listen? Is that the truth? can, so now to just get very practical, can you commit the unpardonable sin? If someone comes to me and they say, I think I've committed the unpardonable sin, and and I'm I'm horrified over it, and I say, if you're concerned that you committed the unpardonable sin, you didn't commit the unpardonable sin. (laughs) Because people who committed the unpardonable sin, if they could do it, are not really all that concerned about committing the unpardonable sin. The very fact that you're concerned about sin is demonstration that the Spirit of God is speaking to you, is working in your heart, is working in your life, and is moving you towards repentance because that's something that Christians do. Christians eventually repent. Christians start out by repent and believe and we continue to repent and believe and we will continue, even now and in the future, we will continue to repent and believe all the way until Christ returns, at which point we'll just believe and hopefully won't have anything to repent of anymore. If, if the promises of the, of the gospel are true. Christians repent. And so if, if you are concerned that you have committed the unpardonable sin, then my, my word to you, and I trust this is from the Lord, is you have not committed the unpardonable sin because you're concerned over your sin. And that's evidence that the Spirit is working your life. The Spirit is speaking to you is moving you towards repentance. And so rather than be concerned about whether you committed the unpardonable sin, just do what the spirit says and repent. <laughs> repent. Because that's that's what Christians do. But if you persist, if a person were to persist in saying no to the Spirit, that person is essentially judging the testimony of the Spirit To be erroneous. That person is effectively accusing the spirit of being a deceiver. Of being a liar. And and your only hope is to believe in Christ. And in order to believe in Christ, you have to listen to the spirit who is convicting you. And is telling you, this is the Messiah. Will you listen? And you either believe he's telling the truth... That is, he's from God, or you ignore him as irrelevant, eventually dismissing him as a liar who is from Satan. And that's the sense in which we can still do it. But I think you have to persist in that until you die. You have to persist in that until you die, which is troubling. But the good news is that Jesus is the right man for the job. He is the fulfillment of every legitimate desire that you have. He is the hinge upon which all of human history turns. He is, and he can be, your Savior. And God, through the presence and power of the Holy Spirit in the life of Jesus Christ, he has validated him as the Christ. Proof positive that Jesus is the Messiah. And even today, the Spirit testifies to this fact. Even today, the role of the Spirit is to make much of Jesus. You might think, am I listening to the Spirit? Am I a Spirit-filled person? Is this a Spirit-filled church? Well, the litmus test is very, very easy. Are you making much of Christ? Do you love the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you submitted to Jesus? Because the Spirit draws attention not to himself, but to Christ. J.I. Packer writes of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit is like a spotlight has a focus on Jesus, and our attention is drawn not to the machinery of the spotlight, but to what the spotlight is spotlighting. Right, Jesus Christ. How do you know if you're submitted to the Spirit? How do you know if you're a Spirit-filled person? How do you know if you're a Spirit-filled church? Well, on the one hand, there, I'm, heavens, there's no such thing as a non-Spirit-filled church. The Spirit has to be here if this is a church, right? But are you making much of Jesus? That is the litmus test. The Spirit testifies to this and in the lives of those who love the Lord, the Holy Spirit continues his work of testimony by sanctifying, by guiding, by convicting and encouraging believers. Your destiny is to be like Jesus. How do you know that? Because the Holy Spirit will make it so. And that is a powerful testimony to Jesus' credentials. Jesus is the right man. In fact, he's the only man for the job. Amen? Amen? Amen. Let me pray. Uh, Father in heaven, we are we are so grateful for the Lord Jesus Christ. We are grateful uh, for how you anointed him with power through your spirit. We are grateful for the testifying work of the spirit. And we ask, Father, that we would continue to listen to your spirit. Testify to the greatness and the power and the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ. Give us ears to hear that. Give those who have never submitted to Christ ears to hear. Give us who have in the past submitted to Christ day by day ears to hear and listen to the spirit and submit. That Jesus might be made much of. That we would be characterized by a confession that Jesus is the Christ. That he truly is the son of David. The one that we have been waiting for. The only hope of humanity. We bless you, Father, for your kindness and goodness to us. We bless you, Lord Jesus Christ, for your majesty and your wonder and your tenderness and your gentleness. And we thank you, Spirit of God, for your work in our lives that enables us to say to Jesus... You are the one we've been waiting for. It's in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and only by his authority that we can pray. Amen.